0: Topic. Now, everything that we are going to talk tonight is related to the cross. The cross is not only a symbol of Christianity, but the very reason that we are here tonight. The cross in Christianity means hope. It means life through death. And look at your handout, the first passage that I highlight for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. Look what Paul says. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Basically, Paul is saying that Christ died according to what the Scriptures foretold about him in the Old Testament. Right? So in in Paul's theology, nothing is more important than, than, than this central truth. And his ministry is centered and anchored on the cross. In these opening chapters of the, this letter to the Corinthians, look what Paul said in chapter 2, verse 2. You have in your handout as well. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Of course, Paul taught the Corinthians church about other subjects and topics, the sovereignty of God, the Holy Spirit, the church, the unity of the saints. What Paul is doing here is using this hyperbole, this figure of speech, this exaggeration to say, just to emphasize how important the truth of the cross is in his ministry and in his life, and of course, in the life of the church. And the cross can only make sense in view of God's justice, love, and Jesus' sinless life. Jesus was not merely a martyr in His death, as many had claimed. But, he, but the divine, the incarnate Son of God, like our brother Alex um, highlighted last week, Without a clear understanding of Jesus' incarnation and His sinless life, some of the Christians' doctrines makes no sense at all. The doctrine of the Spirit, the church, perseverance of the saints, his everything makes no sense. Without an understanding of the atonement that we are going to talk about in a few minutes, um, we would have no strong foundation to rest upon. to to base our faith. And I like what Leon Morris, a theologian, said about the atonement. He said that the, the atonement is the crucial doctrine of the faith. Unless we are right here, it matters not. It seems to me, he says, where we are like elsewhere. So this is so crucial Not only for Paul's theology, but for all of us. And this is what I want to highlight tonight, this work of Christ, the atonement, as I will be defining in the field, and we'll be uh, talking about throughout um, this uh, class tonight. So tonight we're going to focus on this doctrine of the atonement, right? And I have some um, uh, definitions of the atonement in your handout, just to help you understand what I'm talking about. And the first definition that I have is atonement is the work of Christ in reconcile God and men. Or I like what Wayne Wayne Gruden in his book Systematic Theology says: atonement is the work of Christ, is the work of is the work Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. Notice. Notice that in his definition, he says the work that Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. And I think this definition is helpful because it helps us, it shows that atonement not only refers to Jesus dying on the cross and paying for our sins, but includes also his life on earth, more specific, his obedience And there are two aspects of the atonement that we will be talking about tonight. Christ's obedience, sometimes called his active obedience. And this refers to, and I have this on your handout, Uh, this refers to Christ's obedience for us in which he perfectly obeyed the law and was perfectly obedient to the will of the Father in our place. The second aspect of the atonement is Christ's passive obedience. This refers to Jesus' suffering for us, in which He took the penalty due for our sins, and as a result, He died on our behalf. Now, let's take a look on the first aspect of the atonement, or the work of Christ. Christ's sinless life, His active obedience. Now, since the atonement is the work of Christ in reconciling man to God... Why was the need to the second person of the Trinity to become one of us and die in our behalf? Why was the need for Jesus to become a man and die on our behalf? Could not, just, could not God just forgive us and let us go guiltless? As Damien said in his second lesson in this uh, series, there are a few things that God cannot do. And this is one of them. God could not just forgive and let us go without a penalty due to our sins. This would portray God as a loving God, but as an unjust one. And since God is love and just, if atonement is to be made, God's justice must be addressed. Therefore, we could say that the reason Christ came to earth was because God loved sinners and He died to satisfy the justice of God that in times He passed over it. In times past, He just looked over it. In Christ, God is a loving and just god in fact, we cannot separate God from His justice. If He is to be God, He must be just. And since He is just, He is also a loving God. And the love of God is clearly seen in John chapter 3, verse 16. And I have this in your handout. This famous passage from the book of John, the, the evangelists like to quote. And I'm sure that our brother Call is familiar with that. I had preached this verse so many times and shared this gospel with other people and shared this verse. Because we are told that God so loved the word that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And the justice of God or the righteousness of God is clearly seen in Romans chapter 3 verse 25 whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. The love of God becomes even more evident when we are reminded that God had no obligation to save no one. Remember what Damon said in his first sessions, in his, his, his first class. God is always good. In saving sinners, God showed His goodness and love. However, if for some reason God decided in eternity past not to save sinners, He would remain good and just and loving. But since God, out of His love, decided to save sinners, the death of His sinless Son was utterly utterly necessary. And seeing from this perspective, the atonement is a consequence of God's decision to save sinners. And it could only be carried out by the death of Jesus the perfect, sinless, spotless Son of God. In regards of Jesus' sinless life, look to some scripture references with me. I don't think we have the time to go all of them, but I, you have the, you'll take the handout with you and, and, and you can read this over when you get home and look all these scripture passages. Well, let's just take a look on one. Um, Look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And look at the words, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners. Only Jesus could take our place and receive God's justice and pay for our penalty. And everything that we are talking about here tonight is tied tied with the past three classes. So we have missed one of those or just... Uh, encourage you to go over and listen to those classes because it makes sense as one is tied to another one. And this will make sense as Sean last week will, be, will continue in this series. So it's one thing to connect to the other. We're just focusing tonight on the atonement, the work of Christ, His active and passive obedience. Now... And one of the specific things that the, the class tonight is tied on is the, depraved, depraved, the total depravity. Depravity of men, right? Or the sinfulness of men. And, the, and, and this is, relates or talks about the absolute helplessness condition from um, the condition of men and also one of the, the enmity and rebellion that we have towards God apart from Christ. And this rebellion is not only in words and deeds but also in actions. It's like our whole being is corrupted and this empty towards God is is a utter empty towards Him because of our sin. Now and since we're talking about this atonement, if humanity were to be saved from this helplessness From this total depravity. Only God could take upon Himself this work. The work of atonement to earn this forgiveness for us. Only the Creator Himself could make this work possible. Because if we are incapable of doing anything good, how can we save ourselves? How can we help ourselves? How can we seek God when in reality we are enemies of God? It's almost impossible. It's not almost, but it is, in fact, impossible. So, unless God, in His goodness and justice, decided to do something about it, we could not help ourselves. Only God could make the propitiation for our sins. And look at what Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says. Again, you have this in your handout. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. This is about Jesus' incarnation. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Only Jesus, the God-man, a person of infinite value, was qualified to take upon himself the penalty due to our sins. However, if Jesus had only died for our sins and obeyed the law as our representative, we would have no right to the merits of His obedience, meaning heaven. Our guilt would be removed indeed, but we would have no reward. We would be back to the position that Adam stood before the fall. We would be rescued from our sins and its consequence. But we would still want the obligation to earn our salvation through the covenant of works. And subjected again to eternal death if we disobeyed. But God having rescued His people once, He would not let them to be lost a second time. And this time, God took upon Himself the form of a man in the person of Christ, a man among men. And Jesus perfectly obeyed the law by living a sinless life during his earthly ministry. Something that we could never do. So in this way, Christ, our perfect representative and law keeper, earned our salvation by his own merits, and all ours. You see, what, what I'm trying to, to, to point it out is that in Jesus' active obedience, in keeping the law, He earned for us the merits of heaven. Something that we could never attain by our own efforts, by our own works. But He did. He lived this sinless life. Never sinned and kept the law on our behalf and then earn the merits of salvation of heaven Amen. and I agree with a theologian named Lorraine Butner when he observes that throughout the history of the church a lot has been said about the passive obedience of Christ which we are going to talk about in a few And not so much about this Jesus' active obedience. And the result is that many Christians, not in this room, of course, that many Christians who acknowledge the substitutionary death of Christ on their behalf are unaware that Christ also lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father and obeyed to the law. Also, on their behalf. So I'm trying to point out that this this work of Christ in obeying the law, and this act of obedience on our behalf, and because of this life of obedience and service, the, and service that Christ lived to God, He earned our eternal uh, salvation. Our And restoring our relationship with God in in one aspect in fulfilling the law. So then when we see Paul saying that salvation is by grace through faith, right? This is actually a third part merit that is applied on our behalf. We look to Christ's work, His finished work that is applied to us as we trusted in Him. Now, Jesus' active obedience was the first aspect of, of His work that we are looking at tonight. And the second aspect is His passive obedience. Point number two that you have in your handouts, in the back of your handouts, Jesus' atoning death, His passive obedience. In a passage that, before you look in your handout, a passage that portrays this atonement, this work of Christ in, in the Old Testament with, some, with a unique force and that highlights like no other passage in the Old Testament. Uh, anyone would guess what passage is that? A hint, it's a prophet. You cannot say it, Damon. It's a prophet. A passage in the Old Testament that talks about the atonement, the work of Christ, His suffering. There's one passage that we, it, it, we, we, always, are, we always quote this passage when talking about the sufferings of Christ. In the Old Testament, a prophet. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. And of course, Psalm uh, Psalm chapter 22, which Jesus quoted while on the cross. So I have some, uh, I highlight some verses from Isaiah 53 that you can read uh, later. I will quote some of them, but you can read this um, chapter later. Um. So just to define some, some um some um um some words and this passage portrays Jesus as this vicarious suffering right as this vicarious servant who died on our behalf and and, and, and vicarious means taking the place of another another person or thing, acting or uh serving as a substitute, right? So in one sense Jesus suffered His entire life while living in this earth. If you think about a sinless Son of God living among sinful people, His whole life was a life of suffering. But of course it is in the last week of His ministry on earth and while dying on the cross that we clearly see His suffering or, or we can say the apex of His sufferings. Or we see His sufferings intensified in the last week of His ministry, and specifically on the cross. We see right before His arrest, Jesus, uh, uh, in anguish of soul, asking God, God the Father, that if possible, to pass the bitter cup from Him, the bitter cup of God's wrath that is about to be poured out on Him, meaning this this wrath over sin is about to be poured out on Him. And He's asking God if it is possible to pass this from Him, Even before any nail was driven through His hands and feet, and any flogging was inflicted on Jesus, we see Him sweating droplets of blood as He started to agonize with the reality of the cross. And it is at the cross that everything happens. We see Jesus, His bodily and his spiritual suffering. We see Him crying out to the Father, 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 why have you forsaken me? It is at the cross that we see not only the awful and physical pain He suffered, but even more so the pain and anguish of His soul in bearing the guilty of our sins. And something that the scriptures bear testimony about it, like I said in Isaiah chapter fifty-three. Now, and and instead of highlighting some of the verses of uh, Isaiah fifty-three that you have in your handout, just look at Hebrews chapter nine, verse twenty-six in the New New Testament, as the author of Hebrews applied this passage of Isaiah and the prophets and the prophecies of, of of the Old Testament to Jesus as our sin bearer. Look in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26. The author tells us that Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And clearly there's a link to the prophecy in, in Isaiah chapter 53. And Paul, in a striking way, tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 22 that For our sake He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This means that God imputed our sins on Christ on the cross. And in receiving our sins on the cross, Jesus bore God's wrath and justice. Something that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 3 verse 25 very clearly. And he says about Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a substitution, in our, as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. And I like what uh, Wayne Gruden, again, in his systematic theology defines Propitiation is defined as a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end. And in so doing, changes God's wrath towards us into favor. What a wonderful thing, right? It's just a word that we talk about and we often say it, right? Propitiation, vicarious, substitutionary, atonement. But when we look at these words, they start becoming, gaining a different uh, sense in 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 our minds, we start seeing that these words they mean something deeper, and the propitiation, like like this sacrifice, that bears God's wrath to the end, and in so doing, and in so doing, changes God's wrath towards us into favor. On the cross, the wrath of God that since Adam's rebellion had been stored up was fully unleashed on Jesus. Now, the fact that Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place is at the heart of the doctrine of the atonement. And this is called by theologians the panel, substitutionary, uh, panel substitution. It was panel in the sense, in, in the fact that Jesus bore the penalty for our sins, and it was a superstitionary because he died on our behalf. Now, um, when I was a, a, a young adult, um, maybe in my 20s, or probably my 20s, I used to work in post office in Brazil. And uh, it was a good place to work. Post office in Brazil uh, is... Um, it's part of the federal government. So I was not making a lot of money, but I was a single man, and there was, I was making a good money. Not for me, and had good benefits. And, um, but I was never very good in managing my money, or I could say I was careless in using my financial resources. And I was not a believer, I was not married, so of course I um, spent my money in ways they are not God-honoring. But since I was so careless with my money, I start spending more than I earn, And of course, I incurred debt. So I came to the point that every month, and by the way, in, in, in Brazil, as many of Latin countries, we get paid once a month, not every week or every other week, but once a month. So meaning that you need to be a, a good, uh, to manage your money very well. So when you do that, it's a problem. So. I start spending more than I earn, and of course, I start using the line of credit I had with the bank. So when I get finally my payment, the bank would just eat up part of my, uh, my check because I own the bank some money. So and then you get in this vicious cycle, like month after month, that you're always using this line of credit that, you have, that I had. To the point that when I realized this became a snowball, I said, What's going on with my money? I, I don't see my money. It's, I'm always in the negative. Always in the negative. It comes in the middle of the month, I'm always in the negative. So, and I had this wonderful idea I'm, gonna, I'm going to ask the manager of the bank to loan me some money so that I can pay them and buy some stuff that I want. And then I will have just one creditor. This is a wonderful idea. You own the bank. You you lend you loan more money from the bank to pay the bank. It was a wonderful idea. I thought it was. So and of course after a few months that I paid off the bank and I thought now I just pay the bank. Just have one creditor. And of course I end up in the old vicious cycle. Now I had I own the bank for the loan that I took and now I'm using this line of credit. So my situation in the end was worse than in the beginning. So and then, after a few months, I had this wonderful idea again. I'm going to borrow more money. And this time I said, well, but I don't think it's a good idea to borrow money from the bank now, because I own the bank too much. I'm going to ask my uncle. Even though we don't have a good relationship, but I know that he's a good man, and he's doing well financially, I'm going to ask him some money. So and then uh, I... I approached him, and I said, "Listen, uh, this—I just need some money to pay off some debts." And then he started asking some questions. But what happened? And I tried to explain as best as I could, and he realized that my the issue that I had was just I was a careless man in managing my money. And he made some questions like, "How in how many installment payments are you going to pay me? On what day are you going to pay me?" said, if you're not going to pay me on that day, uh, uh, this is not good. He was very hard on me, asking questions and, and making this very serious. Something that I uh, it made me feel uncomfortable. But I realized that something needs to change in me. And of course, by God's grace, I would say it was His mercy. After a few months, I was able to get on my feet and pay Him and 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 learn uh, to deal with my money. And it was not the same time that I met my wife. I think she had an impact on me. <laughs> Probably. So I'm um, just saying this, just to illustrate the fact that how, as we think about sin, and this work of Christ, when we think about sin is like this snowball effect, right? As we sin, our our this negative, uh, in comparison to a, a bank account, we just add to our account. And as much as we try to deal with our sin or to pay off our debt, more we get into debt. As more as we try not to sin, more as we get into debt in, our, in this vicious cycle just continues to grow and grow. To the point that we need someone to ransom us. We need someone to come and actually pay our debt, because we get to the point that this debt is so big that we look to our desk. I cannot do anything. I'm not only on zero but in minus, and this is just growing and growing. And that's when, is it, when, when we realize by God's grace our sinful condition, and that's when we realize God's sinless Son who can only who can only be the propitiation for our, for our sins and take our debt on Him. And what, what He does is this ransom deliverer. He not only pays our debt, as I'm just explaining, His suffering and died on our place and giving us forgiveness. But and then this wealthy ransomer comes on our behalf and makes us an heir of His merits of obeying the law. He gives us salvation for something that we do not deserve at all. Because what we, we only do is to sin. That's what we know by birth. And He makes us he not only pay our debt, but He makes us His heir. Amen. Now think about For a man who never were able to manage his finances, now suddenly he sees himself sitting in a palace sitting on a throne next to a king. And he says, it's all yours. He says, what is your attitude towards a, a, a man like this? Thankfulness? He said, I do not deserve to be here. In fact, I was supposed to be in prison to pay because I could not pay my debt. And some historians, they pointed out that in the past we had this sort of a jail for people who could not pay their debt, So we had a debt and could not pay. We'd go to jail, and we stay in a specific place in the past. And of course, today, if you have a company, just file for bankruptcy. Basically, it's a different means for saying I cannot pay my debt. (laughs) But now we've gone. You have sin. You have you 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 have a debt that must be paid, but you cannot do it. And as much as you try to clean yourself and to find a solution, have great ideas. And we call these great ideas good works. We think that our good works can add to our bank account. They cannot. They simply cannot. And I like to think about sin also as... I'm not sure if you ever work with grease with your bare hands without gloves. Grease, grease. Grease that we use on cars. When you get grease in your hands and, and you are doing some work... You can try to use a dry rag or a wet rag to remove grease from your hand. You'll realize that's not enough. In fact, everything you touch with your greasy hands will, will become stained with that, and it's really hard to remove. Now, even a regular soap can remove grease from your hand. You need a specific chemical that sometimes, or, or, or soap, the mechanics they use, or a dish detergent to remove the grease from your hand. And it's sticky, Right? So in a similar fashion, when you think about sin and this greasy uh, and, and 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 aspect of sin, that everything we touches is becomes stained with sin. It doesn't matter how many good works that we try to do to clean our hands from sin, or to clean ourselves from sin, or to cover, to make up for sin. The reality is that only Christ can cleanse us from this. Sin. Sin is sticky. Your good works would not be enough. It's just like dry or wet rags that might remove some of the grease, but in fact you realize that the oily thing will stay in your hand unless you apply a proper dish detergent or chemical to remove it. So I hope that this illustration might be helpful to you, and as we Look to, um, to the third part of our class tonight. Christ, Christ's resurrection, power over death. The work of redemption would, would not have been complete without Jesus' resurrection. It isn't the resurrection that Jesus claimed victory over death. The ultimate consequence of sin. In Adam's rebellion, death entered into the world. Through one man's transgressions, the entire human race came under condemnation, and death had the upper hand. Look at what Romans chapter five verse twelve says. I have in your handout as well. We're not going to read all of this passage, but just Romans chapter five verses twelve. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. And death through sin. And so death is spread to all men because all sin. Likewise, to the work of one man we were made righteous with God. And death has no power over us because Jesus was raised from the dead. Of course, it does not mean that our physical bodies are not going to die It means that our souls are free from the bondage of eternal death and condemnation in hell. Look at Romans chapter 5 verse 15. For if many die through one man's trespasses, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Now, theologians have called this um, the representative principle, which is clearly stated in 1 Corinthians chapter five, uh, chapter fifteen, verse twenty-two. For in one, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. As the first human being, Adam, stood as the head and representative of, of, of the entire human race, so does Jesus, and in both His active and passive obedience, He stood for all of those who are to be saved. You see, the representative principle in Adam, we all die, and in Christ, we all are made Alive. One represents the entire human race, the fallen human race, now the one, the redeemed human race. And because Jesus is our substitute in life and death, His resurrection and ascension into heaven guarantee for us resurrection and our ascension to heaven as well. Jesus' victory over death is a victory in which we share when we are united with Him. Just think about is what a tremendous comfort this reality gives us when we faced with the imminent and sure death or when we deal with death of beloved ones. Jesus' resurrection is a sure hope for us while alive. Jesus was raised to show his power over death. And then the fourth aspect, Christ's ascension, His ruling and interceding for us. The Bible also portrays Jesus after His ascension to heaven as our faithful intercessor next to the Father, ruling forever in all eternity and glory. There's nothing new for us. And because Jesus took upon Himself our humanity, He can sympathize with His people in a way that it was not possible before the Incarnation. Can you think about this? That Jesus' Incarnation changed the way that the Creator sympathized with His creature because He took upon Himself humanity. This is uh, mind-blowing, I think, as we think about this. And the fifth and final aspect is the work of Christ, as we see the atonement and the work of the Christ, we see how this unite how this ties to the gospel. As we close this session, I want to remind you that because the work of Christ was finished, and He is the new and perfect Adam, through faith, your life is hidden in Christ. And if you're not yet saved, if you have not yet placed your faith in Him, I want to tell you that He is the only way to God. He is the only way to pay for your debt, to erase your debt. In summary, the work of the atonement is not only a theological principle, but a true reality in the lives of those who believed in Jesus for the salvation of their souls. Christ's sacrifice of Himself has practical application for us. First, it assures us that there is no more penalty for sin left for us to pay. He erased your debt. Second, the penalty has been paid entirely by Christ, and we should have no fear of condemnation or punishment. Or because we cannot fulfill the law. Or because we cannot keep this and that. We are reminded that Christ kept the law for us. We are not under the dominance of the law. Can you understand how this releases us from, from, from guilty? From shame of not doing this, of not being able to do that? When you understand that Christ's active obedience did that for you. You're no longer in this punishment. Or fear of condemnation. Or because I do not walk like my brothers do. Or I'm not as disciplined as he or she or that. Or Your life is not based on works. You need to be reminded of that. But based on Christ who kept the law. His act of obedience. Earn your salvation. As hard as it is for us to understand that we are sitting next to the King who earned our salvation. We do not deserve to be there, but that's where we are. What do we do? We accept the reality and we turn in thankfulness. Thank you for you, O great King, who paid my debt. Who ransomed me from such a great debt. And because Jesus was our substitute in His life and death, the benefit of His work, meaning Forgiveness of sins and the reward of heaven is ours through faith. And I wanted to finish with this question for all of us. In whose lifelong record of obedience would you rather rely on for your standing before God? Christ's or yours? Would you rather rather? rely on Christ who has a perfect score of obedience or yours that I'm, not, that I'm sure it is not that perfect would you rely on you would you rely on Christ and if you had not yet given your life to Christ are you willing to rely on His record His perfect record of obedience for your, for your eternal destiny just wanted to finish with these questions to help us to think about the work, the perfect work of Christ. Now, so I would like to give you a little homework. A little homework. As you leave tonight and you have this handout, you can read through the handout again. There's some passage and you can dive into this passage and others that this passage will lead you to. But I want you to, I want to challenge you to read this week. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. And if you have time, read together Psalm 22. And as, and, and as you read and meditate on Isaiah 53, look how this passage portrays the obedience of Christ in relation to the Father. Look the specific way. And if you can, do some journaling or jot down some thoughts about what you see in, in Isaiah 53 as you think about Christ. You will be encouraged what you're going to see in Isaiah uh,